This is exactly right. Hi, I'm Erin Welsh. And I'm Erin Almond Updike, and we're the hosts of This Podcast Will Kill You on Exactly Right. We're back with our seventh season, which is bigger and better than ever. Because guess what? We're now a weekly show. This season, we're tackling everything from long COVID to norovirus, from the supplement industry to IVF, and so, so much more. New episodes drop every single Tuesday. Follow This Podcast Will Kill You wherever you get your podcasts. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. So here's one. Would this be it? No. That's not it. So there can't be that many that have that little border, right? Here it is. I think these are too big, babe. It's not that one? No. And it's kind of tall and skinny. Oh, God, there's a whole other space. My 12-year-old daughter and I spent some time over Christmas break searching through the very old Mount Calvary Cemetery in Austin. Have you ever wandered through a cemetery? I think it's the first time I've taken you to a cemetery. Yeah, I usually don't go to cemeteries. Okay, just... See, this looks not so far off. So look, look what years these are. 56, 24. I think we need to go to an older area. Of course, she died in 1896. In the summer of 1896, Annie Powers Burt and her two little girls, Lucille and Eleanor, were buried here in their family's plot. I'd like to find it because I think it's important to acknowledge that in crime stories, we often don't pay enough attention to the victims. The killers take over the narrative and the victims and survivors become props, not central characters. When true crime fans listen to my stories, yes, they hear about the killers, but they also learn about history and families and victims and the ties that make these crimes relevant now. Why am I telling a story from 1896 now? What can we learn from it now? We can do better in this space. We can unravel a fascinating story about a crime, but not at the expense of the victims. That's what I try to do here. My daughter loves a challenge. And we've been wandering around this cemetery in the cold for more than an hour before we finally have some luck. See, these all look old. This must be their old section. Are you sure this is the right cemetery? Oh, yeah. What's her name again, Anna? Anna Powers. Anna Powers? Yeah. Wait, wait, this looks exactly... I found it! Here. You did it. So they were These all the buried children. together. Here are the kids. See, Eleanor and Lucille. So it's two girls and, and the mom. Why would he do that? I don't know. As I said at the beginning of this season, this isn't a who done it, but why did he do it? 
Why did Eugene Burt suddenly snap and kill his wife and his children? Especially, why did he kill his children? That part makes no sense to me. In July of 1896, Eugene Burt had left Austin on a train bound for Dallas, and he hadn't been seen since. Police believed he had murdered his young wife and their two girls, a four-year-old toddler and an 18-month-old infant. Investigators were gathering physical evidence at the Burt House in downtown Austin. They had reported to Dr. Graves that there was no blood to be found anywhere in the house. Someone had cleaned the downstairs very well. But investigators spent more time in the upstairs bedroom where they assumed the family had been killed, perhaps as they slept. There was no blood there either. But historian Monica Ballard says, then the police looked a little closer. They thought, okay, well, where was this deed done? Because they weren't finding any blood anywhere. They went upstairs to the bedroom and finally took a piece of cloth and wet it and moved it across the floorboards and found that there was blood seeped between the cracks of the floorboards. This technique was the 1800s answer to luminal, and investigators thought the blood told them what happened. So he had killed them up there and dragged their bodies downstairs and then had gone back upstairs and cleaned up the crime scene. And do they have any idea about the order of things here? Probably the children first, and then her. And this is where that crate comes in, the one he shipped to Houston with a false address. Just a reminder of all the evidence they found inside. It wasn't until they tracked down the cases that had been sent to Houston, they found on the trash pile a packing slip with the address. So Bert had just made up a name. Oh, Mr. So-and-so is going to come and pick up these packing crates, send them to Houston. And when they located them, they sent them back to Austin and opened them up. And they found one bloody hatchet and clothes and curtains just sopped in blood and brain matter. I thought that this was an odd way to dispose of evidence. Why didn't Eugene just bury them? No time. Just throw them in a crate, send them off, so they'll, you know, they they they, they get a loss, they get abandoned. No one ever comes to pick them up. That's actually really smart. Eugene Burt was smart, even meticulous, and he might get away with murder because it was so easy to be anonymous in the 1800s. You've heard me say this before. In the 19th century, there was no national identification system, no driver's licenses, no passports, and most people had never even sat for a photograph. In fact, there are no photos of Eugene Burt, at least none that I could find. So it was very easy for him to slip away to another city or even another state or even another country. And before the bodies of his wife and children were found that Tuesday, Eugene had already arrived in another city. He gets off the train in Dallas, buys another ticket for St. Louis, and then another for Chicago. And when he arrives in Chicago, he uses all the money that he got from the Millers for the sale of his furniture and gets a a hotel room at the New Brunswick Hotel on Canal Street under the name of Bronson. Back in Austin, it was obvious that Eugene had vanished, which police found to be suspicious 
But remember, this was early in the investigation. There were no witnesses, and any fingerprints that could be lifted and attributed to Eugene were inconsequential since he lived in the house. Of course his fingerprints would be there. And the motive was still a mystery, especially for such brutal killings. Could a madman have done this? Or might the servant girl annihilator be back after 10 years? Using an axe as a weapon seemed especially cruel. It reminded investigators of the string of murders just 11 years earlier. They thought that Eugene Burt was an annihilator, a family annihilator. Could he, at age 15 and 16, have been responsible for those murders too? The weapons were the same, a sharp axe. Could that really be a coincidence? Two axe murderers? An axe feels very antiquated to me as a weapon. It's a heavy weapon that causes a lot of blood spatter. You'd have to be close to the victim, which could be risky. There are lots of easier ways to dispatch someone. So it's not a particularly common weapon today. But in the late 1800s, it was much more common. Patricia Childs says that the weapon alone isn't enough to connect the servant girl murders to what happened to Annie Burt and her two daughters. Today, we wouldn't be thinking about the fact that you would have an axe or a hatchet sitting around your house because you had to chop wood to keep your house warm. You know, today, if somebody had an axe sitting around, you'd think, wow, a little bit, hmm. I remembered reading about the fact that he was described as having been chopping some wood, and so that hatchet could have been just sitting handy and someone else could have picked it up and done the deed. Everyone had an axe in the 1800s because everybody burned wood. I can see why people want to think and if, in fact, he had been that murderer as well. She's right. Police in 1896 wondered if Eugene Burt was the servant girl annihilator. There were similarities between the two killers, and it wasn't just that they both used an axe. They both lobotomized their victims Eugene had stuck something through the brains of his daughters. The servant girl annihilator had done the same thing with some of his victims. Eugene had practiced that technique on his brother's bunny when Eugene was a child. And of course, Eugene was at the scene of the second to last murder. He had actually discovered the ax and delivered it to his father and the police. It's clear that there was some sort of connection between the cases But the idea that Eugene was the servant girl annihilator feels a little flimsy. And most importantly, the experts that I've spoken with say it's very unlikely that a 15-year-old would be clever enough to murder eight people without leaving behind any forensic evidence except for footprints before vanishing. And then there was that gap of 11 years without any murders that could be connected to Eugene before he killed his family. What would have stopped him? We know that serial killers do have a cooling off period. Some of them have very long gaps in between murders. Life circumstances change. They get married or they have children or they move. Some serial killers come to terms with the realization that actually killing a person doesn't match up with their fantasies. Dennis Rader, the BTK killer, found it difficult to find time to murder when he had children and took on more obligations at his job and his church. 
It's suspected that Joseph D'Angelo, the Golden State Killer, became too old, and frankly, he might have even been scared of being caught. The cooling off period between murders is another characteristic that distinguishes serial killers from all other types of murderers, but they might begin killing again when they're psychologically compelled to. Still, would a 15-year-old like Eugene Burt have been able to get away with being a prolific serial killer? Probably not. But those murders from 1885 might have influenced Eugene throughout his life. He was unlikely the servant girl killer, but there is another possibility, one that we touched on earlier, how the case of the servant girl annihilator intersected with Eugene Burt's story. Patricia Childs brings up her own theory, which is more of a query about Eugene's father, Dr. William Burt. He had died a decade before his son became a suspect in the murders of his own family. Uh, let's see. Okay. Jean's father had been dead 10 years. Has anybody ever wondered? Now, this is dark. Are you ready for this? Has anybody ever wondered if the father is the one who committed the servant girl murders and that Gene knew that because he recognized this hidden side of his father because he knew it all too well within himself because his father died in July of 1886. And the murders were 1884 and 1885, right? I wondered about that because as a city physician, Dr. Burt was at every single crime scene of those murders. It immediately struck me also that that Gene may have somehow sensed, you know, because with all of the negative, highly energized and perhaps overly functioning nerves that he had, he could have been sensitized in other ways. I think he might have picked up on the fact that something was going on with his father and he may have carried that and he couldn't carry it anymore and maybe he acted on it. In previous episodes, we talked about how violent, disturbing childhood experiences can shape the crimes of killers later in life. Many serial killers were abused or neglected or came from unstable families. Some reported witnessing terrible things when they were young, like sexual assaults. Instead of being traumatized by them, some killers became fixated on those crimes throughout their lives and they eventually wanted to fulfill those fantasies. Patricia Childs wonders about Dr. William Burt. If Eugene's own father was a serial killer when he was a teen, and Eugene knew it, you can imagine that he would have been impacted by that. And then, of course, he had murdered his own family in a similar way. But Patricia's son, Jeremy Childs, isn't so sure. I think my mom thought maybe, you know, the, the elder Bert might have might have actually been the annihilator, but um, that may be taking it a step too far. But I, I definitely think that that line of work set in play a lifelong mental time bomb waiting to go off for Eugene that ended up going off in 1896. Okay, but we do know that many times when someone becomes violent or abusive as an adult, it's because they were hurt as a child. And there have definitely been cases where an investigator or someone involved in a case turns out to be the main suspect. 
And that's why Jeremy is reticent to completely dismiss his mother's theory about Dr. William Burt being the killer. There's a whole lot of circumstantial evidence about Dr. Burt's possible involvement in the actual crimes themselves, not just investigating them. You know, my mom has a, and I'm not just saying this as her son, but she has this just uncanny intuition about things. And she's, she picks up messages from the universe in weird ways. You know, anything that she ever says, whether it sounds, you know, Looney Tunes or not, I have to at least consider it because she's right more often than she's wrong. And I don't know where she gets the messages from, but it's, it's uncanny sometimes how right she can be. But I think we can safely dismiss William Jefferson Burt as a suspect in the murders as we look through a 21st century lens. Authors like Skip Hollinsworth and J.R. Galloway have done extensive research on the Servant Girl Annihilator case, much more than I have. It's clear that there was no circumstantial evidence linking Dr. Burt to the murders other than two things. Dr. Burt reported to each crime scene, and the murders stopped after he died in July of 1886. But neither of those facts are convincing to me in the least. When Patricia Childs brings up William Jefferson Burt as a potential suspect, it's a way for her to sort out why Eugene would have killed his family. Was there something in Eugene's DNA, something other than mental illness? As we've said before, mental illness can't be blamed in this case. Something more was there. There had been other suspects in the Servant Girl Annihilator murders, like the husbands of the last two victims. Both were eventually freed, but one spent time in prison first. Historian Monica Ballard tells me about some of the more widely known theories that have floated around Austin. There's this old wives' tale that says that the reason the killing stopped was that the guy found that he was about to be captured, so he went across the pond and took up killing again some 18 months later as Jack the Ripper. But criminal profilers have dismissed that theory because the apparent motives of the two killers seem very different. The servant girl Annihilator sexually assaulted women and then butchered them with an axe, and he killed a man, too. Six of the women were lobotomized. Jack the Ripper murdered five women in 1888 London. He also mutilated their bodies, but the victims weren't sexually assaulted. None had been lobotomized, and the way they were mutilated was different. Jack the Ripper taunted police through letters. The servant girl killer did not, as far as we know. There are just too many loose ends. And it's because of this that, as I said, The theory that the servant girl murderer and Jack the Ripper were the same man is generally dismissed. A reminder that the servant girl killer murdered people in his bare feet, probably to reduce the amount of noise that boots would make. Investigators noted the appearance of the footprints in the soil at the scenes. The killer seemed to be missing a toe. There are several pieces of circumstantial evidence in the case. And because of that evidence, Monica Ballard says there was a more likely suspect. And he wasn't a fledgling Jack the Ripper. He was a local man with a history of violence toward women. His name was Nathan Elgin. The reason the killing stopped was in February of 1886, he was in a bar in East Austin and he started slapping a woman around and he was told, stop it. And he dragged the woman outside, continued beating her, her up 
and men came outside and told him to quit it. And Nathan made the mistake of bringing a knife to a gunfight, literally. Yeah, so he drew a knife, the other, the other guys drew a gun, shot him dead. And when police did the autopsy, they found that he was missing his little toe from his left foot. And a detail that had never been released to the newspapers or the public was that in at the many crime scenes, when bare bloody footprints were found, that the left foot appeared to be missing the little toe. Is that the only evidence against him? Yes. Witnesses had seen what some had described as a black man at the scene, but no one could definitively say it was Nathan Elgin. The reason I ask is because if the footprints were the only forensic clues to tie Nathan Elgin to the murders, then that's a problem. We know that footprints and handprints and fingerprints are many times not accurate. The National Academy of Sciences wrote in its 2009 report that unless the specimen collected at the scene is pristine, then you can't match it to a suspect. It won't be accurate. Just because the killer's footprint appeared to be missing a toe in the dirt or the snow doesn't mean that print was accurate. Even if it were accurate, people had missing toes and fingers and limbs in the 1800s from all kinds of accidents involving machinery or disease or an ax they dropped when chopping wood. And here's another issue. The crime rate in Austin was high in 1886. A lot of people were killed, so Nathan Elgin's death after the final servant girl murder wasn't the only death. The real killer might have also died, and many, many men were violent. So the killing of a violent man in 1886 doesn't surprise me one little bit. If Nathan Elgin had actually been arrested and put on trial for the servant girl murders, a good defense attorney could really dismantle the district attorney's case. Was Nathan Elgin guilty? It seems likely, according to author J.R. Galloway. But would he have been found guilty in court? Maybe not, if he had a good attorney. But Elgin was black. So in Texas in 1886, it's questionable if he would have received a good attorney, and it's almost certain Elgin would have been hanged otherwise. The identity of the servant girl annihilator will always remain uncertain, just like the identity of Jack the Ripper. In 1896, Austin police were certain that Eugene Burt was guilty of murdering Annie Powers and their daughters, Lucille and Eleanor. Eugene was in the wind, and as investigators collected evidence, it seemed to them that Eugene had planned these murders in advance, and that's certainly what it sounds like to me. What are the other things that point towards premeditated? So what happened? He bought the hatchet. Bought the hatchet. A couple days beforehand. Yeah. I wonder if the ticket out of town was a spur-of-the-moment thing, but you could, I mean, there's no way to trace that, I guess. The cases that he sent on the train earlier, he'd made up a name and sent them to Houston. And Monica Ballard says there was more evidence. Bert had been seen the day before the killings in the backyard dragging a burlap sack. What's the burlap sack? What, what, how does that fit in? Contained, probably contained the, the hatchets and perhaps the wire that he used to 
to bind the hands and the feet of the children. This is clearly premeditated. Yeah. So why did he bind the hands and the feet? What would be the point of that? I don't know. I don't know whether it was done post-mortem or beforehand. He had to have killed them while they were sleeping. That's probably why witnesses heard just one cry from a child. Annie and the girls had been sleeping. There didn't seem to be a fight or a struggle. Murder is rarely rational to most people, particularly murders that aren't crimes of passion, but premeditated. But I still can't sort out why he killed his four-year-old and 18-month-old daughters and why he likely killed them first. He probably looked at them and they had witness painted on their face rather than daughter. If, you know, if he had a mental break, and I, I think that's a that's a foregone conclusion in his case. And so in the midst of swinging an axe into his wife's skull, I can't imagine what his mental state would have been at that time. And so if his daughters are witnessing this happening, they're probably screaming uh, it's late at night. You know, two little girls certainly wake me up if I was their neighbor. So uh, maybe I had to silence them. Who knows? Domestic court judge Dimple Maholtra believes that Eugene's motive was even more simple. His family was an obstacle to his new life. I imagine that his motivation there was just to get rid of any and all evidence and really just go on with his life, thinking that he wouldn't face any consequences if he were to murder everyone. We talked earlier about why these tragedies happen. Why would a father kill his children, his wife, or his parents. But it's not just fathers who do it. I asked forensic psychiatrist Dr. Christine Montrose about the possible motivations for mothers and fathers to murder their families. Those tragedies happen for different reasons. They often happen out of desperation. So at least for women, I think it can be different with men. I think that you see rage like in custody battles or um, a fury at a wife and the, the, you know, the most substantial harm you can do to your wife is to kill your children. You know, I think you see rage and, and vengeance more in cases where men kill their families. What can be the motives for women? When women kill their children, very often it's a suicidal mother who does not want her children to be, to go into the system and doesn't see a way for her children to survive happily without her. Or a a woman who's in an, an abusive relationship and knows that if she dies, her children will be left with the abuser. I asked Dr. Montrose about female family annihilators like Andrea Yates. In 2001, she drowned her five children in a bathtub. You have cases, you know, really equally tragic cases like Andrea Yates, who was having what people have described as postpartum psychosis, where she really believed that her children needed to be killed before the age of accountability or else they were going to suffer eternal damnation. And that can be true for men, too. I do think that men who kill their families might have those same factors, but also then you do tend to see this additional category of sort of vengeance and and rage. So it sounds like men are more likely to kill their families out of vengeance and rage than women are. But why Eugene Burt murdered his family still befuddled investigators in 1896. More importantly, they needed to find him. Within days of murdering his family, 
Eugene Burt had stepped off a train in Chicago and began his new life. He went to restaurants and walked around, almost like a tourist would, until Eugene Burt turned a corner and became alarmed. He observes someone observing him, someone who seems to be following him around. And this guy has the, the, the greatest name, Poindexter. Poindexter knew Bert because he used to live in Austin. He was a fruit seller. And so Poindexter had heard from friends of his who still lived in Austin and were keeping up with the news and said, hey, remember that guy Bert and that nice family? Because by then, the, the news was out. This was early August. The men stared at each other for a moment until Eugene walked off. Poindexter quickly found a police officer, and very soon, Eugene Burt's new life had taken a very big detour. He was caught. Eugene became quiet. Mr. Poindexter sees him, points him out, and he is arrested. He kind of denies everything at first. He says, no, no, I'm Mr. Bronson. He eventually owns up to his identity, but that's all he gives up is, okay, yes, my name is William Eugene Burt. And I said, well, your, your wife and children have been murdered. You're the prime suspect because you're in Chicago when you're actually supposed to be in Dallas, which is what you told everyone. And so they send him on a train back to Austin. There was a, a reporter from the Austin Weekly Statesman who got the plum interview of a lifetime. He gets on the train in Elgin and has the opportunity to interview William on the train ride back to Austin. He is just Mr. Calm. It's, it's like nothing happened. He doesn't know anything about it. Oh, really? Is that, is that what happened? He said he won't say anything about the case until he sees what the newspapers have to say. He doesn't have an emotional reaction to hearing that his wife and his two daughters are dead? No, no. And when he was asked about, well, why did you leave? Why did you leave town? Why didn't you go to Dallas? And, and he says, well, well, two reasons. Uh, one, my brothers were going to rescind the bond on my forgery charges, which meant that I, I would have been jailed. That, that was the only reason that he gave. He had two other reasons, but uh, wouldn't give them and said, I'm not going to say anything about anything until I see what the newspapers have to say. What does that mean, do you think? I think he wanted to see what they would say so that he could get his story to match or, you know, make up some other story or something like that. So by now, it's August 22nd, 1896. Almost and, a month. Right? Yeah. When word spreads that William Eugene Burt, who murdered his wife and two children, are on the train, going to be arriving at the Austin station, there is a huge crowd waiting at the train station. Sheriff got wind of this, stops the train outside of town, loads Eugene on a waiting hack, a cab, takes him the north route to the county jail, has him incarcerated before the train even gets to the station and everybody finds out they pulled a, a little bit of a ruse there. And it's probably good they did because he might have just been bodily yanked off that train and hanged. The size of the crowd doesn't surprise me. We've seen that throughout history, people have tried to enforce vigilante justice because they didn't trust the legal system or they knew they were unlikely to be prosecuted for killing a suspected murderer. In my book, All That Is Wicked, Edward Ruloff was constantly frightened of mobs killing him after he was convicted of killing a store clerk. 
They threatened to drag him out of the Binghamton, New York jail and lynch him. Public executions in the 1800s were always well attended. Thousands of people came to Binghamton's town square in 1871 to watch Edward Ruloff's execution. They sat with picnic baskets as their children ran around. An escaped prisoner actually stopped to watch the hanging while he was on the run. Many of the people who tried to meet Eugene Burt at the train station in 1896 were simply gawkers, and there are plenty of those during modern murder cases. Domestic court judge Dimple Mahotra says it's human nature for people to try to understand what the media would call a senseless crime committed by an unusual suspect. They sometimes want to blame the victim because there had to be a rational reason for why violence was inflicted on them. People want to somehow rationalize this behavior. It's really hard to believe that someone would want to just hurt someone. We want to find a reason, you know, and and that has always been my struggle with when, you know, when you pick a jury and and people say, well, what did she do? I just want to know what, what did she do to provoke this? There had to be something. I can't imagine that somebody would just do this unprovoked. Once Eugene Burt arrived at the police station in Austin, investigators began interrogating him with no luck. Eugene denied killing his wife and his children, and soon his attorneys would be the ones responding to the police. Roscoe and Silas Burt were grief-stricken. Their brother had always been a liar and a swindler. They had even sent the law after him. But a killer? He must have been insane, they said. Roscoe and Silas hired a team of capable lawyers to defend him, and they were very good. Bill Allison is a retired law school professor and a seasoned defense attorney who has worked on some of the country's biggest cases. I asked him about defending someone like Eugene Burt. Why would you do it? In a case like this, as someone who worked as a defense attorney for so long, It must be unpleasant to defend someone who has done something as heinous as kill a one-year-old and a two-year-old and kill his wife and put him in a a well, essentially. How do you reconcile that? That was my job, and I liked doing it. I mean, realizing that I was pretty much out there on my own and that I was the only person who could stand between this man and whatever the power the government could bring forward. I asked Bill if he had ever said no to a case that you make that decision early on in the case and you go to the judge and say, I'm not going to be able to represent this guy. Have you done that? I've done it. Oh, what, like what type of case? Oh, it was a child, late 70s child sexual assault case with a client who just consistently lied to me. And, you know, at first I thought, yeah, I can, I can do this case. And then and I just said, no, look, we're not doing this. That's, that's somebody else. I imagine that Eugene Burt's attorneys might have had the same struggle as they prepared their case. They began interviewing witnesses, family members, and family friends about their client. What was his childhood like? What about his mental health? Was he legally insane? Dr. Christine Montrose says that it's important to have competent mental health professionals evaluate a defendant. But even with that report, the answers aren't always clear. Returning again to Andrea Yates, if you watch some of the footage of her being interviewed after she has acknowledged killing her kids, she is 
so what we would describe in psychiatric terms kind of blunted. You know, she has such a limited range of emotional affect. She appears completely blasé and disinterested and sort of shell shock. So would you read that as someone who was psychotic? Uh, the way that I would read that, having not evaluated her in person, but just looking at the footage, is that she's A, deeply traumatized, and B, remains psychotic. I mean, she's continuing to endorse these delusions and visions. And so when you're internally preoccupied, you're also not responding to the external world in the way that someone who's mentally well is, is responding to it. But in 1896, none of that might have mattered to a jury. In a time period when judges regularly handed down death sentences, there might have been little empathy for his mental health state when he killed his family. Are there any circumstances where a killer should go unpunished and sent to a mental health facility for help instead? As we know from some of our other seasons, the answer seems to be yes. But Judge Dimple Mahaltra says that depravity against children is difficult for a jury or a judge to understand. It's hard to understand that kind of, that level of violence and disregard for human life. It, it, it is really difficult to rationalize that. As Eugene Burt's defense team prepared for his murder trial, crowds waited outside the jail, ready to lynch him. The prosecutor was confident that Eugene would be convicted of murdering his wife and children. The Powers family was anxious to see him not just get convicted, but executed. Eugene's brothers knew that he was troubled, that he needed help, but they didn't want to see him hanged. What would happen with Eugene Burt? Would he admit to murdering his family? And would Annie's family ever get justice? It's complicated. On the last episode of this season of Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right... He would flutter his eyelids closed, and he would remain in that state until everything was done and court was dismissed. He closed his eyes. He just closed his eyes the whole time. And there would be no indication that he was cognizant of anything that was going on. No one was entirely sure. He seemed to have absolutely no, there was nothing going on. You don't have to fit into a DSM category or axis to be a terrible person and do terrible things. They're not schizophrenic and they're not any of those things. They're just goddamn mean people and uh, do bad things. So it seems pretty cut and dry and they have all the evidence that they need. However, the judge that oversees the trial says, wait a second, we kind of puts the brakes on things and he wants to investigate Eugene Burt's mental capacity. If you love a good, real ghost story, my new audiobook original, The Ghost Club, is available for pre-order now wherever audiobooks are sold. I can't wait to tell you the real story about the world's most famous ghost hunter, who was the head of the world's most famous ghost club, and how he investigated England's most famous haunted house. Please also check out my new book, All That Is Wicked. This has been an Exactly Right Tenfold More Media production. Producers Jason Whaling, Alexis Amorosi, and Natalie Wren. Editors Jason Whaling, David Fabello, 
and Kate Winkler-Dawson. Researcher Kate Winkler-Dawson. Sound designer Eric Friend. Composer Curtis Heath. Artwork by Nick Toga. Executive producers Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, especially if it happened in your family, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. Follow Tenfold More Wicked on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.